0: Stay tuned next for Resistance Roundtable. Welcome to Resistance Roundtable, broadcast on WPK on the second Saturday of each month, where we engage in conversation about local and nationwide organizing for a more just and democratic America during this pivotal and dangerous moment in our nation's history. Hosting today's show is Ruth Ann Baumgartner, who is a longtime instructor in literature and writing at Central Connecticut State University. She's a member of the Executive Committee of the Connecticut Conference of the American Association of University Professors, Ruth also serves as a member of the Board of Directors and a theatrical director herself with the Westport Community Theater. Ruth Ann is here with us again in the studio. Ruth Ann, how are you?
1: I'm fine, Scott. How are you?
0: Glad to hear it, and glad uh, you're here in the studio with us today. Uh, Joining us by phone today from his usual uh, foreign uh, destinations is uh, uh, Richard Hill. He's currently on the island of Zanzibar off the coast of Tanzania. And, uh, of course, Richard is well-known as the host of WPKN Show's first Tuesday Rainy Day Radio. An organic farm stand. He's also a rotating host of Mike Check, heard here on WPKN. Richard is a musician, teacher, and mentor with Youth Radio Connecticut. Richard, how things in Zanzibar today?
2: Well, Scott, my plane was diverted for reasons which I, I don't understand. And we wound up in Lagos, Nigeria, where we're participating in these massive demonstrations, you know, celebrating the life and times of Queen Elizabeth II. And on top of it all, I woke up this morning, uh, after hardly any sleep, uh, speaking with a British accent. And I I cannot account for it. The The only thing I can think of is that after watching about 36 hours or even 48 hours of wall-to-wall coverage of the uh, passing of Queen Elizabeth II, that suddenly it seeped into my system, and out of sheer sense of empathy with the British people, I am now somehow been converted into having a British accent. That, that's my only explanation.
0: I, I would stay away from the Earl Grey tea. That, that could have had something to do with it.
2: <laughs> I'll take that advice. I'm told that a quick shock, so it's something like having the hiccups, and uh, that like a shock, like some bit of news or like a jolt or a noise or something like that could could snap me out of it. So <laughs> if anybody has any any kind of breaking news that they want to give me, I, I'd i be happy to, um, you know, I, I, I'd be happy to be uh, sort of a guinea pig there, see if yeah. it helps.
0: Well, over the next hour, we hope to give you some audio stimulation to snap you out of it, Richard. Uh, good, good, good. I, I'm Scott Harris, host of WPKAN's weekly public affair uh, program, Counterpoint, and uh, producer of Between the Lines Radio News Magazine, in which both Ruthian and Richard are contributors. In a few minutes, we'll be joined by Adam Eichen. He's executive director of the group Equal Citizens. Adam will be talking about the many threats to America's democracy and elections, particularly threats from past and possible future rulings from the U.S. Supreme Court's Radical right supermajority. I wanted to uh, before we get to Adam, uh, just check in with you both, um, Ruthann and Richard. Ruthann, I know you have an event coming up. You wanted to uh, briefly mention before we go to yes. our topic.
1: Yes. Thanks, Scott. I, I think this is a this is an exciting event for me, and I think it's a, of uh, interest to PKN listeners, particularly. So I will read the announcement. A staged reading of The Winter's Coast, a new play based on a colonial trial transcript from Newport, Rhode Island, and the novel by David Chacko based on the transcript and extensive additional research. At Westport Community Theater, this is the location of the, um, of the reading, in Town Hall, Westport, Connecticut, on Sunday, 18 September at 2 p.m., no admission charge. The, du- the uh, Westport Community Theatre website will have the information, including whether you have to bring a mask or not.
0: All right. Thank you. Uh,
1: I'm not done yet, this guy. Okay. <laughs> the play is a powerful dramatization of a 1774 trial found by novelist David Chaco in papers in the Rhode Island State House. In the trial, a middle-aged blind man sued the captain of a slave ship for depriving him by murder of the services of his slave. What the transcript reveals about aspects of slavery and the slave trade is appalling in many ways. The story is, we feel, an important addition to studies of this nation and its history, such as the 1619 Project. David's novel, The Winter Coast, incorporates the trial transcript. Most of the characters are based on the real people who were part of the trial. Hmm. His script has been edited by Al Khulsar, and will be directed by yours truly, Ruth Ann Baumgartner. I hope you can. I hope you can make it. We're staging it partly to see how how it comes across as a play, so we know that the audience of PKN has good taste and can uh, can probably help us.
0: And uh, Richard, I know you. Uh, hopefully, you've lost that accent. Uh, but <laughs> in any case, uh, did you have an announcement of some upcoming events you briefly wanted to mention?
2: Well, I, no, I'm just kidding. Okay. Um, yeah, actually. I did, I was jolted out of my British uh, persona by uh, the headline I saw in Huffington Post just now Progressive Revolt Leaves Big Energy Deal in Jeopardy. So there's apparently 70 or so House members who are threatening not to re- renew the uh, federal spending limit, I guess, to keep the budget, keep the country going. That it's that thing, whatever it's called, that these, uh, these lawmakers are threatening to withhold support for uh, because they're outraged that uh, uh, at the side deals made with Joe Manchin to support the Mountain Valley pipeline and other egregious, obnoxious, and anti- antisocial, dare I say, uh, things that were slapped into the bill at the last minute to, mm-hmm. to get by. Uh, Mansion's vote so there's a revolt going on and there's no no telling how it's going to turn out so that's very interesting and shocking
0: and I should mention that um, our WPKN's own Melinda Tuhus is there uh, participating and reporting on protests this weekend on that very topic so we'll be, be hearing from her about that this week I'm sure But right now, I'm very happy to welcome to our program Adam Eichen. He's executive director of the group Equal Citizens, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to fixing our democracy. Adam is co-author, along with Francis Moore LePay, of the book Daring Democracy, Igniting Power, Meaning, and Connection for the America We Want. And I would highly recommend Adam's In These Times article titled The Right Wing is Going All Out to Unravel Our Democracy – Published in July, um, in the magazine in these times, Adam. It's great to have you on the program today. Thanks so much for joining us.
3: Uh, thank you so much for having me. This is a very important topic, so I'm I'm always happy to talk about this.
0: Yeah, our our program got started just as a, a footnote here on on that very uh, threat to democracy that we all perceived back in 2016. Was it, <laughs> or maybe it was 2015. But, Adam, as we get started here, I wondered if you'd tell our audience briefly about your group Equal Citizens and the work you do do there, as well as uh, an overview of the current threats you see to uh, U.S. democracy in, in terms of the Republican Party platform of election denial, the widespread adoption of Donald Trump's big lie that falsely claims that massive fraud stole the 2020 presidential election from him. And then, of course, we have hundreds of GOP candidates that have pledged to commit election subversion if Republicans don't win in future elections. And of course, we have many Republican activists who now embrace political violence. And there's certainly one of the signals is that is they're venerating the January 6th insurrectionists as heroes. So just wanted to get your overview, Adam, as we as we begin.
3: Yeah well every everything you said is is very much uh, on the forefront of my mind I mean there's there's just no question that um you know the 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 basis of our democracy is under threat um in a way that it hasn't been for, for a, a while, um, you know the the arc of democracy through American history uh, has been very contentious. I mean, we can't pretend that this moment is is completely unique um, in in the grander scheme of American history. There have been you know, there are great books on on kind of the contention uh, of those who have been fighting to expand democracy throughout U.S. history uh, since its founding, um, since the voting population was uh, a group of land-holding white men, um, but over time, you know, fight back and expand the electorate and make our democracy more equitable and more reflective of our population. But the backlash to the the Kind of the expansion of the right to vote and our multiracial, pluralistic democracy uh, is under threat like never before, certainly in my life. And everything you mentioned from uh, blind um, uh, following of um, uh, Trump's lies about uh, election fraud, voter fraud, which have no basis in reality whatsoever. There is no evidence of widespread voter fraud. Uh, The candidates who are willing to go to lengths to subvert elections, who are running for offices, including chief election officers like the secretary of state across the country country um, and, uh, you know, blind support also, or at least justification for the January 6th insurrection riots, um, uh, keep me up at night. Um, this is really a perilous moment for our democracy. Um, and so, you know, to your question about my my organization, Equal Citizens, it was founded by Harvard Law professor Lawrence Lessig, um, who actually ran for president in 2016 on a single-issue platform to try and raise the issue of democracy reform uh, to the national level. And, and he... He wasn't able to participate in the debates, but from that campaign, we started Equal Citizens as, an, as a vehicle to try and engage in innovative, nonpartisan campaigns to educate the public, not just around the crises that our democracy faces, but also the the solutions to those crises. Because you know, as bad as things are, one of the things that I hope we can talk about is the fact that in states across the country, including in Connecticut, in New York, in Massachusetts. Um, and in states across the country, there are reforms uh, to actually push democracy forward in a way that it's never been pushed forward to be more inclusive. Um, so, against the backdrop of, of a profound anti democratic tide in our nation, uh, there are, are plenty of, of spots of resistance um, and more than just resistance, but proactively pushing our democracy to, to fulfill its promise of being a government of, by, and for the people. And so, that's something that we focus on um, a lot is, is really trying to uh, simultaneously push back against these just horrendous anti-democratic abuses and, and attempts to subvert our democratic processes, as well as to advocate and educate about novel reforms that can um, push our democracy forward.
0: Thank you for that, Adam. And on behalf of my colleagues here, I'd just like to ask one very specific question that was one of the reasons we wanted to invite you here today. And that is this fall, the U.S. Supreme Court will be hearing the case called Moore versus Harper that challenges North Carolina's Supreme Court's jurisdiction to strike down the state legislature's partisan gerrymandered maps. The case pivots on the so called independent state legislature theory that Trump and his coup plotters attempted to use to overturn the state's popular vote in the presidential election and replace the winner, Joe Biden's electoral college electors, with Trump electors. How could a Supreme Court decision in this case, Adam, further degrade America's already deeply flawed and endangered Democratic elections?
3: yeah i'm I'm very glad that we're talking about this because you know i have been sounding a five alarm fire for for years about the assault on our democracy but uh Moore v harper is a a whole nother level of code red um This is without exaggeration um a case a Supreme Court case that could undermine years of progress. That has been made in states to advance democracy, like what I was talking about earlier, um, and, and would fundamentally uh, empower uh, gerrymandered, uh, radical, right uh, state legislators to undermine the will of voters. Um, the, the basic issue at play here is the North Carolina Republicans who control the state house. Um, Uh, gerrymandered maps for or attempted to gerrymander maps for the upcoming decade, just as they had done since 2010. And these are some of the most egregious maps in all of the country that render elections uh, essentially uncompetitive, that Democrats might be able to win more votes statewide, uh, but Republicans still hold a supermajority of state seats because they draw the lines in such a way that maximize Republican votes and minimize Democratic votes. There are excellent books on this, including uh, my friend Dave Daly, who wrote a book on this as well. Um, and basically at issue here was the, it, earlier this year, um, the North Carolina Supreme Court, uh, so the state court, overruled the attempt to gerrymander the state maps. So the state court said that the legislators' actions were unconstitutional according to the state constitution. And they used the state constitution's free and fair elections, like essentially guaranteeing free and fair elections in in the, uh, I'd have to look up the exact wording that they used, to overturn those maps, saying that the maps were a violation of the state constitution. The Republicans in North Carolina have challenged it, bringing it to the Supreme Court, essentially using this independent state legislature doctrine that would say that because the Constitution says that it's up to the legislature – that's the word that the Constitution uses – to decide the times, place, and manners for federal elections subject to federal regulation, meaning Congress at any point can intervene. We can talk about that later, about a potential solution in the case the Supreme Court does rule in favor of the inter, um, the independent state legislature doctrine. But essentially, to narrow it down, the the doctrine is saying that only the state legislature, not the governor – not the court, not the state constitution, have a role in setting uh, regulations for federal elections um, on the state level. Um, And and so that that sounds really complicated, but what it means in practice is essentially that uh, the North Carolina Republican Party has every right to gerrymander the Uh, The state house, uh, barring any action by the federal government, and they cannot be constrained by the state constitution, even if the state constitution explicitly or more vaguely bans that practice. In its most radical interpretation, as I said, it means that the governor's veto might not, be subject, might not be able to curtail the power of the state legislature. It might be that ballot initiatives, which give voice to the people over the legislature, might not be able to be enacted because that would be usurping power from the state legislature. It would mean that the state court couldn't intervene in its most radical interpretation. There are potentially more narrow interpretations that would be maybe slightly less disastrous, but would still open up a Pandora's box where these state legislators, these, these far-right Republican state legislators who hold their majorities because of gerrymandering able to unilaterally act um, to, to regulate federal elections across the country in places that they control. Again, subject to the federal government stepping in and saying, we are intervening here and passing federal laws which would supersede state regulations of federal elections. But in no uncertain terms, even if this sounds wonky, it sounds kind of arcane here, this is perhaps the biggest threat to democracy that we have faced, uh, certainly since the January 6th insurrection, but might have long-lasting effects on not just what the state Republicans can do across the country in terms of their powers uh, as as control of state houses, but also in terms of uh, rolling back the progress that's been made via ballot initiatives um, and state courts across the country uh, in states... Like North Carolina, but also uh, in Arizona, in um, you know Utah, in, in plenty of other states, where um, if the the state Republicans in the state house were given unilateral control, uh, they might be willing to strike everything. Wow.
0: Well, it seems like a way this U.S. Supreme Court could uh, ratify minority rule for years to come.
3: Ain't that the truth? Yeah. I think that's, that's really what's going on here. And I should say that the Supreme Court has been, you know, as I'm sure your listeners know, a, a major roadblock to you know, democracy reform and, and has really taken a number of steps over the last 12 years to roll back our democracy in ways that many of us uh, didn't believe uh, to be possible. I mean, you know, you think back to the Citizens United case, which unleashed independent spending in elections, made it easier for the, uh, the wealthy to spend independently um, and, and on election expenses. Um, you think about how the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act, one of the single most important civil rights bills ever passed in the United States history and one of the most effective tools that we have used in our country to ensure a multiracial Democracy. Uh, The Supreme Court gutted the key provision of the Voting Rights Act in 2013, further gutted it in 2021, um, has punted on gerrymandering, making gerrymandering cases no longer uh, adjudicable in federal courts in Rucho v. Common Cause. Um, The court has has gone above and beyond uh, to make it harder to have a democracy that respects and empowers all Americans. And so this is not a new. Uh, problem that we face, but this is the logical consequence of what happens when uh, at least five, five of the Supreme Court justices in the conservative minority have been appointed by a president who won with a minority of the popular vote. Right. Um, so it's not a surprise that we're seeing a, an attempt to turn towards a, a strict minoritarian uh, governing structure.
0: So I'm here in the studio with uh, Ruth Ann Baumgartner and uh, Richard Hill's on the line. And, Richard, do you you have a question or comment on this important case uh, for Adam?
2: Yeah. Well, Adam, I wanted to actually move to a different piece of your article. I'll just read a a sentence from it and let you comment. You said that Republicans in Ohio were so intent on manipulating electoral maps that they essentially ignored seven separate state court rulings and ran out the clock to have their uh extreme state and congressional maps go into effect this November, um, yeah. could you explain how they could be so utterly
3: defiant and go without uh, sanction for, for their behavior? Uh, it astounds me. I, I don't necessarily have a great a great answer for that, other than the voters of Ohio passed an anti gerrymandering reform in 2018 um, that put some limits on on what the state legislature could do uh, when drawing uh, state and congressional maps. And the Ohio court violated uh, the the ballot initiative according to multiple court uh, uh, um, rulings. Uh, but essentially, they ran out the clock. Um, they just they just ran out the clock. They kept proposing bad maps. And then at some point, the federal court intervened, I believe, and said that they have to come up with a map. And so they they allowed uh, one of the the gerrymander maps to go through. They essentially ran out the clock. Um, a number of people have written about this case. I encourage your listeners to look look into it. But but again, it's it's just a flouting of of, of norms around democracy. It's it's not respecting the rule of law when it curtails anti-democratic practices, but pursuing uh, <laughs> or 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 and, and simultaneously, attempting to shape the rules and judicial you know rulings that that promulgate uh, anti-democratic interpretations. Um, it's just this this twofer um, uh, approach to undermining um, democracy through the judicial system. Um, and and not to take this this point into a different direction, but we also see no evidence that this attempt to undermine uh, traditional jurisprudence and attempting to shape the, the judiciary, uh, we see no, attempt, uh, uh, no evidence that they're going to be slowing down. In fact, a colleague of mine, Andrew Perez, and some folks at ProPublica helped to break a story that uh, a billionaire uh, kind of uh, or funneled through a trust, uh, $1.6 billion to Leonard Leo, uh, who 's been the architect of the attempt to uh, have conservatives uh, uh, overrun the federal and state courts um, he was instrumental in getting trump 's appointees to the Supreme Court uh, onto the bench and now Leonard Leo has courtesy of, of dark money via this billionaire one point six billion dollars at his proposal or at his disposal to continue his advocacy campaign and his efforts to stack the federal and, and certainly state uh, judiciaries uh, to further Further, give legitimacy um, to these anti democratic efforts, like in Ohio, uh, but also, you know, like in North Carolina in the Moore v. Harper case and, and across the country.
0: Adam, uh, Ruth Ann, here in our studio, has a, a comment and a question.
1: Well, I've, I have spent most of my teaching career trying to convince, uh, convince students that they have to pay attention to things that are going on and particularly things that take place in, within words. Uh, and I've also been stunned by a, a Facebook friend's ability to pounce on a single word, give all the importance to that, and thereby totally misunderstand what the sentence is about. But but is there – this is Mitch McConnell's long plan, isn't it? He used to talk some years ago about his, his plan, his project of uh, putting um, more Republicans on all the federal uh, benches – and especially in the Supreme Court and it just seems to happen and i know people who should who should be able to to see it going on and they just don't do you think they're just being entertained to death or do you think they think they understand what's going on uh, or do they just not care anymore or have they actually bought this nonsense
3: yeah, it's 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 a really tough question. I mean, the the you know, this is a like fi- as I said, this is worse than a five alarm fire. I mean, our democracy is being degraded, um, and you know, and and I think that you know there there was a big fight in, in the Capitol at the beginning of this year for the freedom to vote act which was a, f- a massive omnibus federal bill that you know uh, my colleague Larry Lessig and I have spent years you know fighting for the policies within it mm-hmm. and you know th- it was the moment right this was the moment where the congress could have you know could have stepped in and prevented some of the the worst of the anti-democratic abuses and you know we lost and we lost because you know two senators Christian Sinema of Arizona and Joe Manchin of West Virginia uh, were refused to uh, alter the rules of the filibuster to allow the bill to be subjected to, to a vote. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that was a moment where, you know, it, upon reflecting it, it's now been about nine months, I think to myself, you know, that was the moment where we should have had 100,000 people in the streets. But we didn't. Right. Mm-hmm. We didn't we didn't have a hundred thousand people in the streets. And 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 you know, what the book that I wrote with Francis Morlepay, it's now been about five years ago, was was kind of about this emerging movement for democracy reform and, and the growing grassroots activists across the country that are focusing on these process issues which traditionally have been seen as dull and boring, but as we see the anti democratic abuses we see that all, all, we can't make progress on any issue, whether it's the environment, blocking pipelines, ensuring health care for all, right, until we fix our broken democracy because continue, you know, we see it again and again, big money, um, gerrymandering, all these anti-democratic abuses undermine hope for reform. And so this is a long way of saying that I struggle with this question often about why the democracy movement isn't even bigger than it already is. I, I think it's a very strong movement, but it's one that I would think should should concern you know certainly the 81 million people who voted for Joe Biden, but but as polling shows, it, it also concerns a large portion of people who voted for Donald Trump and Americans of all political stripes. And so that's a long way of saying, I think it's a mix of things. I think that the media doesn't do a good enough job talking about these issues. Right. They mm-hmm. they focus on a lot of things that aren't about Morphe Harper, aren't about um, the, the Supreme Court uh, attempting to to undermine democracy. Um, and, you know, it, it's also something that more groups need to talk about and, and we need to do a better job highlighting successes. Um, so that's a little bit of an un, uninspiring answer. But it's I, I think what I'm saying is you're getting a little bit towards what I'm grappling with of. Why we can't get more people involved in this, and I think that we have to do a better job talking about it, showing people that there's a solution, and um, yeah, and, and just showing people that the consequences of this anti-democratic action is, is what we saw on January 6th. This has, this has a material impact on people's lives, and, and until we do that, I think it's, it's very hard to show people that this is, this is serious and that they should take action on it.
0: Let me reintroduce our guests here on Resistance Roundtable. We're speaking this morning with Adam Eichen. He's executive director of the group Equal Citizens, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to fixing our democracy. And Adam, j- just to follow up on what we've talked about thus far, I-, I wanted to ask you, in terms of the Moore versus Harper case, and, and I'll, I'll leave the other uh, voting issues aside for a moment, but just narrowly on the Moore versus Harper case, What uh, should Congress be doing? What should the Democratic majority in the House and Senate be doing before the 2022 midterm election? Is there any solution afoot in Congress or outside of Congress?
3: Uh, that's, that's a very, very good question. Um, can, can you hear me? I just had to switch phones because it was low on battery. No, so on?
0: we got you. It's Excellent. Fine.
3: Yeah. So this is a very important question because this is, you know, as, I, as I've been, you know, I, I just spent the last 20 minutes talking about how much of a code red it is, right? But the key thing that we have to understand is that we can pass laws to mitigate the worst of these anti democratic abuses um, because the Constitution very clearly gives Congress gives the federal government the ability to regulate federal elections. So the states might be able to, Moore v. Harper might say, for federal elections, state constitutions can't, um, can't pre- uh, uh, prevent the worst anti-democratic excesses, but Congress can. We know that Congress can step in and, and regulate federal elections. And so Congress could pass laws that standardize processes for, and again, the governance of federal elections. So it could guarantee um, you know, a certain amount of early voting. It could pass a ban on partisan gerrymandering for congressional districts. It could require independent redistricting commissions, like in California, which have been very successful. It can mandate same-day voter registration for federal elections. Um, you know, the list goes on in terms of uh, what the federal government can do. It can set uh, uh, standards to ensure that uh, state officials can't engage in election subversion. Um, and, and all of these bills, a lot of these provisions, all of the provisions that I just mentioned, were in the Freedom to Vote Act that Congress almost passed in January of 2022. The House passed it uh, for the second uh, session in a row. And the Senate had 50 votes to pass the bill, but mm-hmm. they couldn't get past the filibuster. And so the Democratic caucus is uniform and on, on kind of on the money with what they need to do. But the problem is is that the entire caucus and really just the two senators from Arizona and – or one from Arizona and one from West Virginia uh, weren't willing to do what's necessary to actually enact it into law by superseding the filibuster. The filibuster, by the way, which doesn't apply to judicial nominations, so uh, Mitch McConnell certainly was able to, to, to use that to stack the Supreme Court even further, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a little bit of a contradiction there in terms of anti-democratic forces are, are able to use the current system to undermine democracy. But those of us who care about a, 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 a justice-filled, uh, multiracial democracy can't uh, pass the necessary laws. And so that's the simplest answer. In terms of the federal government can intervene right now, Congress can pass a law right now, to preempt the worst of Moore v. Harper by regulating federal elections and setting strict standards. Um, I'm not sure if that's possible uh, with Joe Manchin and Christian Cinema right now. Uh, if the Democrats do nominate or, and, and win two more seats in the Senate who, uh, who would vote to reform the filibuster, uh, it's game on.
0: Hmm. Richard, did you have uh, any other uh, questions, comments for Adam?
2: Yeah, Adam, I was wondering how much faith should we put and do you put in the ballot initiatives that are springing up all over the country on these and other issues? I'm looking particularly at the one you mentioned in Arizona where the advocates are collecting signatures and I presume based on your reporting here that they have enough signatures to get these on the ballot. I'm not sure you can confirm that. To actually specifically address The legislature's assertion of plenary power to to determine slates of electors, the campaign finance restrictions, they're curtailing and also a curtailment of the legislature's ability to overturn a presidential election. That could be on the ballot. If that happens, is that like a fait
3: accompli or is it going to be attacked by lawsuits and all kinds of other stuff? Right. So, okay. So, so good news, bad news, Um, as with everything in this conversation in American democracy. um, So the bad news is that the stacked Supreme Court of Arizona, uh, that was actually stacked, it was packed by the Republican governor, upheld a decision, just a, an absolutely baffling decision that essentially struck and, and rendered null half of the signatures that the Arizona campaign, which had, I think, oh, like, at least like, had dozens, I believe, of pro-democracy reforms that would have been in it. And so they struck half of the signatures, which left them short of qualifying for the ballot. Um, it was one of the most brazen Uh, anti-democratic moves i've ever seen with the ballot initiative so that so the arizona one which would have been a remarkable fair elections ballot initiative uh, will not be on the ballot in 2022 there's another one in michigan That uh, will accomplish many uh, additional great things. That one was also attempted to be uh, struck by Republicans on the local level or on the kind of election board level, I believe. Um, And the state Supreme Court actually intervened and uh, overruled it. So that will be on the ballot. That's a long way of saying ballot initiatives are very complicated because there are multiple points at which it seems now that, that far-right anti-democratic extremists are looking to undermine the people's will even on ballot initiatives. That said, Mm -hmm. ballot initiatives have been probably the single most successful tactic used by democracy reformers over the last six years. Um, In 2016, on the same election that Donald Trump uh, won the presidency, I believe – I'd have to go back to an article I wrote back in 2016. But I believe that there were 16 ballot initiatives, um, local to state level, that passed that specifically advanced democracy. In 2018, I believe that there were 22 of them and, and, and substantive ones in 2018 as well, including four that reigned in gerrymandering, uh, a couple that did a, a campaign finance reform, a number of them, like in, in, um, in Nevada, for example, they passed automatic voter registration, which is a, a remarkably successful program to expand the electorate. Um, and so that happened across the country. And in 2020, I think we would have seen more if not for COVID. Um, and so, you know, ballot initiatives are one of the most successful ways for those of us who believe in democracy to push the ball forward. Why? Well, because we know that democracy and expanding democracy is popular with citizens. We know that the, the, the average American believes in democracy is finds election subversion abhorrent. And, And seriously, we know this, we know most Americans believe election subversion to be abhorrent and don't support the ability to overturn elections by state legislators. Right, And so when you give the people the ability to decide on legislation pertaining to expanding the electorate, they generally pass. In fact, there are only a handful of cases that I can recall where the ballot initiatives that advance democracy failed. And, and and there are a multitude of factors why that might have been the case. Of course, Moore the Harper could undermine ballot initiatives, as I said, that because it was not the state legislature that uh, – enacted the law, but instead the people, the Supreme Court could theoretically say that that is not the legislature, but is instead um, separate from the legislature, and therefore would undermine the independent state legislature doctrine. Um, but until until the, the writing is, is, is set in stone on the Supreme Court decision in Moore v. Harper, uh, ballot, it's full steam ahead for ballot initiatives, because these are... The ways that we, we we as a movement have circumvented um, legislatures that have been wholly hostile to uh, a, a democracy agenda. So again, in like Arizona, in um, you know, I mean, not Colorado, Colorado is not an anti-democratic state per se, but Colorado has been successful initiatives. Utah, like red states, Missouri, Florida, right. Um, and so I love ballot initiatives. And until until the Supreme Court takes it away from us, uh, I'm full steam ahead on them, especially going into this election.
0: Adam, uh, we're only got a couple of minutes left, but I, I wanted to ask you, as we've been talking about the doom and gloom here we, with some rays of hope, as you just mentioned, um, what what is the thing that gives you the most hope in terms of overcoming this anti-democratic movement, uh, you know, that's firmly in place in Donald Trump's Republican Party?
3: Yeah, I mean, this is a question that seriously I, I grapple with every day I wake up. Um, you know, the, the urge to just throw out my hands and give up. Um, but, what what keeps me grounded is kind of where I prim- I began this conversation, which is that this is not the first moment in American history that has, has stared into the abyss of of kind of a successful anti democratic movement. Um, America, if anything, is defined by this this contentious struggle, very contentious throughout American history. Um, struggle between those who uh, want to restrict participation in our in our democracy, and those who want to limit the the voices of the people, and those who believe in in the the ability of the American citizen to decide our collective future and to establish a public good that works for all, and and therefore to expand participation, to to make political participation uh, more just and and. Um, Fair uh, across racial groups across socio demographic and socio economic status and and, and, um, and, and that 's what keeps me going um, you know the, there 's nothing that i you know that, that I, I learned over the years when fighting for this that by hinging my hopes on any particular thing that that thing could fail um, mm-hmm. but if you if you kind of hang your hat to the broader story of American democracy, one in which we're not the first to confront this crisis, and we're also not going to be the last, and that our job is to just keep pushing the ball forward and keep incrementally pushing our republic and our democracy one step closer to a more perfect union, uh, one that treats all voices in our democracy um, equal and, and fair and, 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 and respects all, all American citizens. That's how we persevere in this moment, uh, e- even in, the, in, in kind of in the face of uh, potential more retrenchment. Um, because again, <laughs> that is the story of American democracy, and there are people who have stared into very, very, very deep abysses of, of despair when it comes to a belief in democracy. And, and our nation has come out of it. But it's only come out of it not because of, of citizens who just believed things would get better, but because of a dedicated group of American citizens who refused to give up and continue to fight. Um, You know, for those who are really in despair about American democracy, I I highly suggest it's a long book, but Alex Kazar, who's a professor at Harvard, um, wrote a book called The Right to Vote. Um, And it's a large tome of 400 pages, but that book grounds me every day. Um, that this is not the first, and we're not going to be the last, and therefore it's not our job to finish the story of American democracy, uh, because it was uh, the William Hastie, who was the first African American appellate justice, federal justice, um, who who has a quote, who who said that uh, democracy's essence is essentially eternal struggle, mm-hmm. um, and 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 that's what keeps me going. Um, no matter what is happening in the news, as long as there are those of us who are fighting, we keep on keeping on uh, in the belief of a better a better democracy.
0: Well, Adam, this has been an important and sobering discussion about uh, the state of U.S. democracy. Thank you so much for being here. And uh, what's the web address for your group? Uh, Equal uh, you Citizens. can go to
3: equalcitizens.us. Okay. And we'll, we'll have a couple things that we're going to be announcing in terms of campaigns. Um, thank you so much for having me on. And I just I, I really want to reiterate one last time to your listeners, to you guys, um, that, yes, things are bleak, um, but they win if we give up. Um, and so that's the message I have. This is, no matter what I said, that's depressing. We don't give up. We keep fighting. So thank you so much for having me on in this incredibly important discussion. Yeah,
0: We'll, okay. s- we'll stay thank in you. touch. I'd love to have you yes.
3: back. We'll gladly come on whenever you, whenever you want.
0: Appreciate it, Adam. Take care. All right.
3: Have a wonderful day, guys. You too.
1: You too.
0: Uh, that was Adam Eiken, executive director of the group Equal Citizens. And uh, he's co-author, along with Francis Moore LaPay of the book, Daring Democracy, Igniting Power, Meaning, and Connection for the America We Want. And uh, in the time we have remaining, I know that, uh, Ruthanne, you wanted to talk about uh, the cataclysmic uh, effects in motion here on climate change.
1: I I did, yes. I will then. Thank you, Scott. We've been watching five days at Memorial on Apple TV over the last five or so weeks. It's a harrowing revisiting of the Katrina floods in New Orleans, for anybody who didn't know that. Many of us remember watching those floods in horror, learning the lesson of nature's wisdom and the folly of the levee construction done so hopefully by the Army Corps of Engineers, and the helplessness of people trying to save lives and property in the face of that folly, corporate arrogance, Brownie's heck of a job with FEMA development. Deployment After Katrina made her decision to bear down on New Orleans, every human failure, past and present, could have been mitigated or avoided by better forethought, better understanding of natural processes, and better regulation of private and governmental enterprises. And now how long have we and other countries been talking about climate change and global warming? How many steps in the right direction have been taken and then untaken? Tactics dithered about, agreements written and erased, knowledge gleaned and then poo-pooed. Now we're able to actually watch glaciers melt, measure what we can't see, and base forecasts on actual present sea rise and coastal erosion. Modest predictions are that rising seas could swallow millions of acres of the coastal U.S. alone within decades. New research finds an estimated 25,000 properties in Louisiana could slip below tidal boundary lines by 2050. Florida, Texas, and North Carolina also face profound economic risks. In the U.S., the losses would be not only territorial but also economic as hundreds of thousands of homes, offices, and and other privately owned properties slip below swelling tides tide lines over the next few decades. Sea level rise will shift coastlines and property lines, especially on the Gulf Coast and Atlantic Coast. And that means, as several commentators have pointed out, not just flooded homes, but also eroding tax bases. What is the lesson? The world must cut its emissions of greenhouse gases in order to eventually stem the rising waters. The world's foremost scientists have found that given the carbon built up in the atmosphere after generations of burning fossil fuels, the rate of sea level rise is increasing and will continue over the next several decades. According to a major report from NOAA this year, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, sea levels could rise along U.S. coastlines by roughly a foot between now and 2050, roughly as much change over the next three decades as over the past century. What remains undetermined is how communities across the United States prepare for the changes they know are coming and what this country and others do to slow the heating of the planet. If we get our act together, we can get to a lower curve, and that buys us time, Noah said. We don't want seas rising so fast that it outpaces our capacity to adapt. Studies suggest that reliable emerging data can Um, enable individuals and governments to make the smart choices to best defend and prepare against rising seas. We can particularly keep our eye on Thwaites, Florida-sized glacier in the Antarctic ice shelf, which could fail entirely within the next five years. Alistair Graham, a marine geologist involved in the NOAA study, says Thwaites, grounded in the seabed, already accounts for about 4% of annual sea level rise and is more vulnerable to warming waters as a result of human-induced climate change. You can't take away Thwaites and leave the rest of Antarctica intact. Losing Thwaites would be existential. According to the UN, more than 40% of the world's human population lives within 60 miles of the coast areas that will be hit hard by rising tides. British Antarctic Survey's Robert Larder said we should expect to see big changes over a small time once the glacier retreats beyond a shallow ridge in its bed. Meanwhile, people with money have reportedly been buying up oceanfront property and building on it. One new such home buyer commented that he knew he would probably lose his property within a few years, but, quote, meanwhile, I can enjoy the view. Attitudes like that are certainly not going to help fend off or even protect us from what is being referred to as the doomsday glacier. We humans don't have a very good record when it comes to thinking ahead and taking logical, meaningful precautions. And I think what Adam was talking about suggests that the same thing exists in the political world. I have two baby grandnieces who make me very much hope we manage to wise up.
0: Thank you, Ruth. I just have a brief um, comment on... Uh, A leak of the membership list of the Oath Keepers, uh, one of the uh, domestic terrorist groups that participated in the uh, January 6th insurrection. After a nonprofit collective leaked the membership role of the far-right extremist group, the Oath Keepers, the Anti-Defamation League uh, this past week reported that uh, of the more than 38,000 members in the U.S., more than 470 work in law enforcement, or are members of the U.S. military. Uh, The League's Center for Extremism drilled into data released by the Transparency Collective distributed denial of secrets last September. Some members of the Oath Keepers allegedly working in law enforcement include police chiefs and sheriffs. The leak came months after the January 6, 2021 insurrection at the Capitol. Some of those accused of taking part in the riot were members of the Oath Keepers, an anti-government group. The Associated Press reported that uh, appearing in the Oath Keepers database wasn't necessarily proof that a person was ever an active member of the group or uh, or shared its beliefs. And the Oath Keepers were founded in 2009 by Stuart Rhodes and are a far-right uh, militia group that recruits current and former law enforcement, military, and first responders. The loosely organized group often touts conspiracy theories, and its members vowed to defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And earlier this year, federal prosecutors alleged that a group of Oath Keepers stockpiled an arsenal of rifles and ammunition just outside Washington, D.C. as part of an operation to stop the presidential transition of power on uh, January 6th. Uh, Nine Oath Keepers, including Stuart Rhodes, the founder, have been charged with seditious conspiracy one of the most serious federal crimes. The group has a long history of engaging in and promoting their own form of vigilantism by providing volunteering armed security not affiliated with any law enforcement entity. And according to the FBI, there are now more than 2,700 open domestic terrorism investigations, a number that has doubled since the spring of 2020, and that does not include lesser but still serious incidents that do not rise to the level of federal inquiry. Last year, threats against members of Congress reached a record high of 9,600, according to data provided by the Capitol Police. Um, I I think it's notable here that we're not just talking about threats uh, against um, people in Congress. We're talking about uh, threats in record numbers being made against election workers, Mm. librarians, teachers, journalists, coming from MAGA right, these semi or full-fledged fascist people that have uh, found a home in the Republican Party. Um, 21 years, in conclusion here, 21 years after the 9-11 terrorist attack, that we'll be remembering and honoring the the lives of those who uh, were lost On that September 11th day, the U.S. certainly seems to face a deadly domestic terrorist threat from the Republican Party allied white supremacist terrorists and militia groups that uh, we should never forget that the right wing bombing in Oklahoma City in 1995, 1995, that killed uh, 168 and injured some 800 people, women, children. Teachers, federal workers, that that uh, case really, we should work to ensure that the past is not prologue because it seems to be that we have uh, this crisis of domestic terrorism coming to a head.
2: These militias, the oath keepers, and so many others. I see the analogy between between them and the incipient stormtroopers in pre-Nazi Germany in the, in the 1920s. We talked about this last show, but the role of these people, you know, in their kind of ad hoc way, show up at demonstrations, show up at voting booths, show up in any kind of gatherings of progressive people trying to express their views, is to intimidate. Their ultimate goal is to get people to stop, to be so scared about the potential for violence when they attend these events just to not do them, and of course, to lower the voting rates as well. They're serving the same function as the brown shirts, who ultimately became the stormtroopers in Germany, are doing. This is more than a five-alarm fire going on right now.
0: Yeah, I easy. think the combination of things we talked about with Adam and uh, this armed wing of the Republican Party, that I, I think they deserve that, that uh, title, yeah. um, that is the threat that we're facing right now. It's not just in the court's... Or in uh, the back rooms of some skeevy lawyers. We're talking about armed people on the street.
1: Mm
2: Yeah, you know, These are the shock troops, the enforcers for most reactionary policies of the Republicans.
0: So we, we just have about a couple of minutes left. Richard, I know you you had a topic you wanted to address. But yeah, brief, sure.
2: I'll just briefly mention that there's a rare opportunity for Americans to meet with an actual member of the Cuban government. He's visiting several cities in Connecticut, including New Haven. And so he's going to be at the New Haven Free Public Library today at 2 p.m., and he's going to give a short address, and then he's going to open it up to questions. That conversation can be pretty free-form. I don't have his name in front of me, but he is the Cuban ambassador to the United Nations, and his movements, amazingly enough, are restricted only to Manhattan. He's never allowed to transgress the boundaries of Manhattan. But by special arrangement and invitation, he was able to come to Connecticut. Mm -hmm. So that's today at 2 p.m. at the New Haven Free Public Library on Elm Street.
0: All right. Thank you, Richard. Thanks for joining us today for Resistance Roundtable. We'll be we focused on local and nationwide organizing for a more just and Democratic America. We'll be back next month, second Saturday, which will be Saturday, October 8th. We'll look forward to having you join us then. For Richard Hill and Ruth Ann Bob Garner, <clears throat> thanks for listening. Stay tuned. Lots more coming up here on WPKN.